right. So, non-judgmental show of hands. Who here watched the royal wedding yesterday? Either, either live or recorded if you didn't feel like getting up at, what was it, 4 a.m.? <laughs> okay. And who is here to stay through the congregational meeting this afternoon? Okay. And who wants to see if I can connect those two things by the end of the sermon? <laughs> Sermons for annual meetings are a, a genre unto themselves. Because um, here's this thing, so integral to our lives together, but often detached from the time we spend with each other on Sunday morning is also a, a quintessentially Unitarian Universalist experience, and one that was on my mind yesterday as I watched the images of Westminster Cathedral and all the pomp and circumstance of that long tradition. But before we get to that, let's back up to basic, basic questions. Like, what is this place that we're in? At its most basic level, we're sitting in the building of the Unitarian Church of Lincoln. <laughs> um, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. UCL is a Unitarian Universalist congregation founded over a hundred years ago, long a voice of liberal faith on the prairie. And we're standing in a building that the congregation built with contributions of quite literal blood, sweat, tears, and dollars that our congregation owns. What little we owe on the building, we owe to our own members rather than an outside bank or creditor. Second basic question, who are we in this place? We're a group of about 300 individuals, about 90 children, half a dozen staff members, and me, who the congregation voted to call about a year ago as your minister. More on that later. But more than a collection of individuals, this is a, a community. Because we have challenges together. We have celebrations together. We dedicate babies here. We celebrate lives like Lori Hurlbut those who have been part of our community and who are now departed. So if we are a community, then how? How do we live together? This question is critically important to Unitarian Universalists because the easiest way to be a community is to emphasize what everyone has in common, to define us by way of them, this can be a shared economic or racial or social identity, or it can be a shared set of beliefs, a creed required of all who are a part of us. In a mild form, this looks like emphasizing the community's like-mindedness. In the more insidious form, it sounds like defining the community, in this case is the, the tribe, as the right kind of people. And that is not the Unitarian Universalist way. 
we do not have a, a core set of beliefs. We don't say that dem demographics are destiny. But what we do have is a core set of behaviors. This is what we mean when we say that we as a, as a community are a people of covenant. Part of this is the covenant of right relations, which you'll see in your annual meeting packet in a few minutes, and which guides how we interact respectfully with each other as people of faith. But covenant is also a broader statement that we are in relationship with each other, that with each pair of us, there is an I-thou relationship. And the web of those relationships creates a whole. We live into our covenant together because we as, as Unitarian Universalists hold two things as self-evidently, unalterably true. Each individual has inherent worth and dignity, and we are all tied together in an interconnected web of existence. And because those two things can be in dynamic tension with each other at times, we have to learn how to balance them, how to creatively harness the worth of the individual and the reality of interconnection. And so we end up with our other fundamental theological proposition. One might even call it a fifth principle, the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process. In a democracy, all are valued as having a contribution. In a democracy, decisions are made in a way that recognizes that we are interconnected, that the best decision is one that we arrive at collectively. Twice a year, this congregation meets to vote on the issues in front of us as a community. In the winter, we gather to pass a budget and while budgets can be seen as dry, I would say that a budget is a theological document because a community's priorities can best be seen by where resources are spent. So the choices we make in that meeting are statements about what our priorities as a community are. The spring meeting is a little bit different. In the spring, we gather to elect officers to decide how we want to proceed, how we want to be governed, and to hear reports on how the year has gone. And it's a, it's a participatory process for the whole congregation. At the, and at the end of the meeting, the one this afternoon, the board of trustees for the coming year will be in place. And in the time between now and the next spring congregational meeting, that board will act on behalf of the congregation. So that's the how. Also important to ask why. Why do we do this? A while ago, um, this was seven or eight years ago, I was on the board of trustees at a UU church. I had just decided to go to seminary, but I hadn't started classes yet. Uh, and the congregation was trying to start a strategic planning initiative to collectively decide who we wanted to be and how we would set priorities for the next five years, and I had opinions. I knew exactly what the church had to do to be relevant, vibrant, and live into our mission to be a beacon of hope in Baltimore and in the world. It's 
mission statement we read every Sunday morning. <laughs> the vice president of the congregation and I had volunteered to take the lead on the strategic planning project. My minister said this would be good practice for seminary. <laughs> and our first task was to find representatives from every constituency in the church to get them in a room and try to get agreement on a direction about how we were going to set the direction of where the church's direction would go. <laughs> and walking out of that first meeting, three hours later, I leaned over to the vice president and muttered, I think I'm beginning to see how dictatorships start. <laughs> because it's tempting, right? I mean, we Unitarian Universalists take democracy to some extraordinary levels in our congregations and, and at our national level. There have been times, who am I kidding? This happens once a year to me, <laughs> General Assembly, when I have yearned for a polity, a system of governance with clear leadership, history, maybe some pageantry, a way to do things that is understood by everyone. And as long as we're dreaming one that is perhaps more efficient than Robert's Rules of Order newly revised 10th edition. <laughs> the royal wedding, basically. Everyone knowing their roles, the script clear and understood, timelessness in the liturgy, the most involved controversy, the difference between a hat and a fascinator. <laughs> this is also not the Unitarian Universalist way. Winston Churchill was no stranger to royal weddings, and he once quipped that democracy is the worst form of government in the entire world, except for all the other ones. We are a deeply democratic tradition. Unitarian Universalists trace our religious heritage to the Protestant Reformation in Europe 500 years ago. The Radical Reformation, of which our ancestors were a part, spoke loudly of conscience. That the government, any government, cannot mediate our relationship with the divine by fiat. And eventually, reformers of the reformers broke off from the Church of England to try an experiment in church and governance in a new, to them, world. The Congregationalist churches in New England, the Puritan churches, developed a different way of doing church, one that was based in community and the practice of self-government. The Puritans are imperfect ancestors and questionable role models. But they did do this. Even though their conception of who could be a member of their churches was more exclusionary than anything you or I would now practice, they set the expectation that the business of the church would be decided by the members. And because the church was often the central location and meeting house for the community, Members often decided the business of the town while they were at it. 
It's not a coincidence that Massachusetts is home to both Unitarianism and the American Revolution. Both grew out of the same soil, sometimes literally in the same buildings. A friend of mine is a, is a minister at First Parish Concord in Massachusetts. The Battle of Concord was fought on the church grounds. That is now a Unitarian church. So our commitments to the democratic process run deep. And so when I, when I made a joke about how dictatorships <laughs> seem tempting, I was misunderstanding our, our history. Now, I, I wasn't wrong in the moment, because Lord knows we need to laugh after that particular meeting. But I was wrong about the, the prescription. Democracy is the hardest, most complex form of government. And in some ways, a few hundred people is the most challenging size to practice democracy. Our churches are too big for everybody to have their full say on every issue. That is the reality of what happens when you have 200 people in a room. And we are also not big enough that we can be detached from the consequences of our decision. If somebody is affected by a decision that we make together, you're going to see them in coffee hour the next week. But this size is also, in some ways, the purest expression of democracy. It's a group of people, most of whom know each other, trying to jointly discern how they will be together in real time. It is an amazing thing to watch. For me, in my theology, in my faith, I believe that God is more likely to be seen in a group of 200 people than it is in any one person. I have never seen God speak through one person. I have often seen the divine in groups of people. So maybe that makes me naive. The last year has been an exercise in seeing limits in the American democratic system. This week we are mourning again the loss of lives to gun violence. Our large-scale democracy seems woefully outmatched by that particular problem. But faith, scripture says, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And democracy in our country or our congregation is nothing if not an act of faith. I want to end this morning with a, a little bit of self-indulgence that I hope you will see is connected to the, the larger topic. Four weeks from today, you're going to hold a service of installation and ordination. And it's the practice in our tradition that the person being ordained doesn't actually get to say much for the whole of the ordination ceremony. You get some scripted responses and the benediction at the end. So, I want to take a few moments this morning to say a few words. <laughs> <laughs> Services of installation and ordination are as, as high church as Unitarian Universalism gets. 
Ministers gather from across the country in their best robes and stoles. There are processionals, there are recessionals, there are traditional hymns sung at every ordination. There's this thing called the right hand of fellowship where a senior colleague, in this case Fritz Hudson, formally welcomes the new minister into the ranks of professional ministry. The planning of these services resembles nothing so much as a complex, large, and long thought out wedding. <laughs> By the way, your volunteers who are planning this thing are amazing. <laughs> I don't know that they knew what they were getting into when they signed up for it, but they have been just incredible. It is also the case, like a wedding, where most of us who are getting ordained have spent some time thinking about it. I first started thinking about who I might want to preach my ordination sermon and what songs we might sing six years ago. And I am a relative Johnny-come-lately compared to many of my peers, some of which have been planning their ordination service. This is true since they were 12 years old. So you might imagine now the connections as I was writing this sermon, working on the ordination script and seeing pictures of this wedding yesterday. There's a little bit of crossover. But there is one crucial difference. Condensed down to the most basic statement, Megan and Harry are married because the archbishop says they're married. He pronounced them married, and he was consecrated as bishop by another bishop, who was consecrated by a bishop, going all the way back to Simon Peter, who, the story goes, was consecrated by Jesus to be the rock of his church. Incidentally, um, Peter's name is a pun. Petros is rock in Greek. So when Jesus tells Simon, I will build my church on this rock, he's making a joke. <laughs> Thus proving that Jesus has a sense of humor. But our tradition does not have bishops. Jesus did not ordain the leadership of Unitarian Universalism. <laughs> Today, you will vote for a new president for this congregation. And four weeks from now, that president will come to the pulpit in the midst of the ordination ceremony and ask me if I'm prepared. I'll say yes. And then they will turn to you and ask the membership of the Unitarian Church of Lincoln to rise in body or spirit to ordain me. The gathered clergy from across the country will not rise. My family, as, as dear to me as they are, will not rise. That's not their role. Ordination falls to you congregation that voted to call and ordain me. The covenant is between us, not any outside body. I would not have it any other way. We take democracy seriously because it's who we are. 300 individuals living in and around Lincoln, Nebraska, trying to build something together. Not because any authority told us to, but 
because it means something in our lives to belong to a church, to belong to each other, to covenant with each other. May it always be so. Amen. And will you please rise in body or spirit and join in singing our closing hymn, number 287, in the gray hymnal, Faith of the Larger Liberty.